0: Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain, and most importantly, help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS combined charities page, or other charities such as Shelter or local charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. It's a, it's a rolling start this week. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Not that we've not been here already. Um, good afternoon uh, and welcome to the eighth episode of Have We Got Plan News For You. My name, as you'll know, there by now is Charlie Banner. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, we've got a packed show for you today, including our special topic World Class Architecture and the Role of Design in the Planning System. As always, um, Please do continue to provide your questions and comments in the Q&A function. I'm very pleased to see at least one person is um, steadfastly encouraging me to play my music in the run-up to a show. You really don't want me to do so, but uh, I won't take any more encouragement. Um, And uh, you can follow up any points after the show on our LinkedIn page. Once again, I encourage you to follow that if you haven't already. Um, This is a free show, uh, but can I reiterate our usual encouragement for you to make a donation either to the NHS COVID Capra Carers, a Just Giving page, or a charity of your choice. Now, without further ado, um, let's introduce the panel. So, can I ask each of you in turn? Uh, we'll come to you in later, um, but each you turn to say who you are, where you are, and what you're drinking.
1: Good afternoon. It's Mary here from Wandsworth. I'm wearing red for reasons that Ian will explain. But this is the England Lacrosse Team shirt, which my children proudly uh, wear.
2: Hi, my name is Chris Young, and uh, I'm at number five chambers. I'm currently in Hogwarts, as you can see. I'm joined by Presumption the Owl, who this week is on a tall tower in honour of uh, Ian that's been built uh, out of Lego. Um, I am drinking Mad Goose this week, and um, for no apparent reason. And um, please, can we not have any requests for Charlie's music? It's all Bon Jovi. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and hello everybody it's paul from lancashire uh, i am presently drinking something in honor of presumption the owl known as two hoots uh, which i'm most impressed by as is presumption uh, i am not wearing my gryffindor quidditch outfit as somebody suggested on the chat a few moments ago in honor of chris the, this is actually my colleague's rugby shirt and i would be wearing a red rugby shirt but for the fact i wore it yesterday and we only got the uh, the memo yesterday so sorry about that
0: Although I did like Sasha's pre- pre-airing description of you dressed as a bee. <laughs> 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 um, I'm drinking for no... With a real sting. <laughs> thing. For, no, for no particular reason other than it's all I could find uh, in the time available. I must at this point issue a clarification. Last week I was drinking Ghost Ship, not, as Chris <laughs> thought, said, goat, S-H-I-T. Uh, I hope Chris was not the only one who thought that. Well, um, <laughs> what have we been up to um uh, this week uh well thanks to this this week uh finally uh sasha has enabled uh me to share some images uh so if i do screen share i can show you what we've been and hopefully you'll see here um uh, here is chris on a uh a separated site visit i hope that's visible to you all there and uh chris i gather you are in your um your speedos
2: which... yeah those those are my speedos there's no fear there that they are just a pair of bungee smugglers they are just genuinely Uh, a pair of shorts and we're drinking beer though uh for anybody from senior management at david wilson homes that is non-alcoholic beer just to be absolutely (laughs) clear and uh, i'm not going to tell you where the site is but it's uh, quite close to sasha's house
0: I wanted a bit better with houses on. And then for, I, I moved house last week and uh, I proudly posted this image, which I hope you can see uh, of, of a box-free room in my house on Facebook, only for our, our friend and fellow barrister, Jonathan Easton, Easton, to comment, I love how your home office has a little flag on top. Uh, <laughs> 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 which uh, tickled my screen uh, uh, enough of the screen sharing.
4: Um, no. Charlie, before you go on to introduce our very, very special guest, I introduce myself. I know it's like it's a yes. reminiscence of when I led you, that you, <laughs> you, you forgot about my involvement in the case. Like,
0: oh, I can tell you about that case. There's so much I could tell you about that case. but <laughs> <laughs>
4: like, can I, Sasha White, this is my first Have We Got planning news <laughs> for you, which I've done from North London, because I need to be near my spiritual home, the mighty Emirates Arsenal Football Club.
0: <laughs> Hello, and we haven't forgotten about you, really. Now uh, let's introduce our very, very special guest—the uh, uh, world-class architect, artist, author, poet, founder of Ian Ritchie Architects and Rice Francis Ritchie. Ian, you've got uh, more letters after your name than I think most uh, most households have, or indeed most most villagers have. Uh, Ian Ritchie, uh, Ian's firm as. as uh, Viewers will know design the glass periods, the sculpture courts, the louvre, the stainless steel spire in Dublin. I think we're going to show in a, in a little while um, some of your uh, most famous and notable works, Ian. Thank you so much indeed for, for joining us. We're privileged to have you um, here. Um, as usual, our guest interview with Ian is in the uh, second half of the show, but we've got a special topic of world-class architecture beforehand, which Ian, you'll be um, contributing to in due course. Um, but without further ado, let's go to our first topic this week, which, as usual, is court case of the week. And I'm going to kick off on this. this uh, the court case of the week is a judgment handed down by Mrs Justice Leaven, um, formerly Natalie Leaven QC, uh, on Monday, uh, a challenge to the Greenbelt leases in the Leeds site allocations plan. And Mrs. Justice Leaven upheld the claim. The context for the for the plan was that the 2014 Leeds Core Strategy had a high housing requirement for amongst the things 66,000 new allocations over the planned period from 2012 to 2028, and the Site Allocations Plan or SAP was intended to be the vehicle for those allocations. The preparation of this plan took ages, six years in total. Uh, the issues and options paper was 2013. It wasn't adopted until 2019. There was a consultation draft in 2015, submission draft in May 2017, which proposed uh, as near as damage be- to green greenbelt releases, uh, greenbelt dwellings. Um, and whilst that sat was progressing, the council decided to embark on a core strategy selective review, CSSR, which, in line with the new standard methodology, significantly reduced the housing requirement because Leeds is one of those areas where the housing requirement goes down with the standard methodology and the site allocation plan and CSSR were promoted and examined separately but within a few months of each other Um, and the SAP was a little bit ahead of the CSSR so when the site allocation plan was adopted in July last year, July 2019, the 2014 core strategy which was on the way out was still the Extant Development Plan. Um, but the lower housing requirement was rapidly coming along the horizon and the CSSR with that lower requirement was adopted in September 2019, only a couple of months later. Um, how the Council sought to deal with this with the inspectors was to modify the SAP during examination so that green belt releases would be made only to the extent required to deliver the first 11 years of the 2014 core strategy to 2023. There would then be a SAP review almost immediately after it was adopted. Um, which would have to be completed by 2023 to bring the allocations plan into alignment with the lower um, CSSR figure and that that was said to mean that the SAP could be adopted now in July 2019 rather than going back to the drawing board whilst making it future proof in the light of the imminent reduction in the uh, housing requirement under the, under the core statutory review and what the claimant said the JR was that the decreased requirement in the emerging court strategy view meant there was no longer exceptional circumstances justifying the green belt releases and the inspectors hadn't properly explained why. Um, and, and Mrs Justice Stephen agreed. Um, she said that it's possible that the inspectors thought that exceptional circumstances continue to exist, um, either because of, of that it was necessary, as the council had sought to say at the hearing uh, of the High Court claim, necessary for each bit of lease to serve its part, um, all because they thought um, there was some issue about five-year housing and land supply, so there needed to be an excess of strict needs. But the inspectors hadn't adequately explained why it was. They thought the exceptional circumstances continued to exist despite the change of circumstances. And she said they, needed, they didn't need to explain why Greenbelt release was justified specifically for each individual site in this way, but they did need to set out very clearly the approach they were taking to Greenbelt releases, which she thought they didn't do. And my observation on this really, my main observation is at, at a piece with what we've been saying in earlier episodes of this show, which is um the inspectors really were victims of, of the lengthy nature of the plan process. So much change in the planning landscape between 2013 when the site allocations plan got started and 2019 was adopted that there were a host of banana skins presented for them to deal with and it made it didn't make it legally impossible for them to provide an adequate uh, uh, report and a sound plan that was withstanding uh, were able to withstand challenge but it made it that much more demanding a task for them to draft a report, the reasoning of which kept Pace with the arguments that have developed over the ever-changing circumstances. Unfortunately the report slipped up over a couple of banana skins so it's yet another illustration of the, the difficulties presented by the lengthy nature of the local plan process in my, in my suggestion. Um, uh, Chris, Sasha, you, do you have any? Uh, yeah, I do
4: Charlie, I'm interested. Your perspective of course was representing one of the interested parties who had land allocated in the SAP Mm. my perspective having done two appeals in the past three years in Leeds on people who have been left on the shelf, I mean I would say that Leeds, frankly, the local authority are the prime miscreants in this, because as soon as you let the cat out of the bag and have a review which significantly lowers the housing overall housing allocation, the only sensible route forward was to stop the site allocations document. I mean that what they tried to do, and one of the things that Mrs Justice Leven made so clear, is the post-ipso justification that somehow the three different plans, the extant development plan and the two emerging plans were kind of some credible strategy, they weren't and frankly I think what happened here, what went, went wrong was to keep, keep the, the view, the legitimacy of the SAP document and where really of course as you've said in terms in a way what should have happened was they should have thrown their eggs in the core strategy review basket and left and come back to the SAP once, once effectively that had been adopted. So I think that's very important and the lessons for all those out there is that one can't pretend if housing need changes at the kind of strategic level one can't put one's head in the sand and pretend that hasn't happened that will clearly influence the emerging development plans and that is the reality of the situation and therefore for those of our, our listeners and watchers who are involved in development plan you've got to keep your eye on what is happening with the housing need whether it be through the SM or an alternative form of assessment so I think that's the real takeaway I would just add one thing which is relevant and very important is that of course Mrs Justice Leven has not yet determined remedy and you, of course unquestionably are giving advice, as we always know, on 113 one, challenges. Actually, I often think the most interesting element is what remedy is actually granted by the court in the light of the decision taker. Uh,
0: well spotted, Sasha. And I, I'm, I'm going to remain deliberately silent on that because yeah. obviously something <laughs> looks at Otherwise. right now. Um, but I mean, another notable point, of course, it's it's the third case I think in a row we've looked at where the claimant succeeded. So for all we've said about in the past about the challenges and difficulties faced for, for judicial review and statutory review claimants, um, it, it's not impossible in the right case uh, with the rightly formulated grounds. We need
4: to move on to the PINs decision of the week. Um, and, Before uh, we do, Charlie, it would be a yeah. of me not to mention your famous charm with m- Mrs Justice Leaver, and that was obviously so instrumental in that outcome. <laughs> oh, thank you, very much. my former people mistress.
0: If, if that exactly. Was supervisor. Um, those are the days. Um, Paul, um, tell us about the PINs decision of the week. Oh, oh. you're
2: on mute.
4: Do you think we should do the world a favour by keeping him on?
3: (laughs) That was it. You've just missed the best gag of the whole show. What can I say? (laughs) I'm going now. Yeah. Well, I've now spotted that there's a theme to this show, which is uh, Charlie Banner's charm, because it's obviously not just Mrs Justice Leaven. It's also uh, Madam Inspector Francis Mahoney, in in front of whom uh, Charlie spent uh, Marnie, Sorry, spent five days in March and July of last year. Uh, arguing the case in relation to a site down at Walborough Barton, uh, which is an extension of Newton Abbott, uh, mm-hmm. and proposing a scheme for just over 1,200 houses, together with uh, a couple of care, cent- uh, care homes, a local centre, a primary school, a hotel, anything else Charlie could think of, all on a long, long list there, <laughs> all promotes an expan- expansion to this settlement, which was an allocated site. And the, the big point in relation to this is that, The council didn't determine uh, the application within time because it was locally controversial, very well organised local residents group, and sat on the application, forcing uh, the appeal to take place. And the appeal was then heard on everything that the council could think of. Mm. Uh, Ecology, highways, air quality, everything was thrown at this, either from the council or from third parties, apart from the principle of development. Um, It's one of those depressing cases where everybody sitting back should have been working out how to deliver the site rather than arguing the toss about how to refuse the planning application. Well, ultimately, uh, the inspector recommended approval and the Secretary of State agreed uh, with Madam Inspector Marnie. Um, Sorry Mm -hmm. about that if she's listening. Uh, And the decision was issued last week. The, The interesting thing which has caused quite a lot of flurry on social media is one that I'm particularly interested in, which was that um, a fellow member of the bar turned up uh, to uh, make an application or rather to argue the section 106 obligation wasn't sufficient Mm. because it didn't make provision for a period of time between when people would occupy the houses and when the NHS would get its next settlement from government uh, and therefore wanted uh, the developer to gap fund the wages of the NHS workers. I mean, it says that in terms within the, the decision letter, it's extraordinary um well for for those of us who have a historic bent or rather would love the the opportunity to argue this before the high court um we we had a civil war about 400 years ago uh, where we decided that you can't have taxation unless it's expressly authorized by parliament we had a chap called james ii who tried to push back a little bit so we kicked him out and got william of orange and made him sign up to the bill of rights 1689 which said you can't have taxation without our authority and yet here we have the Torbay NHS Trust, saying that it wants to reverse the results in the English Civil War and get us to have general taxation through the Town and Country Planning Act. Well, mercifully, the Secretary of State said no. It only relates to an allocated site in terms of this decision, but I'd like to think that this will be the start of a process where the Secretary of State will be saying no in circumstances which go beyond allocated sites, because the Town and Country Planning Act is not a plaster to deal with all the financial woes of local authorities. It's a land use and planning issue, not a general taxation issue. Oh, sorry, I should also say, everybody applied for costs against everybody else and the cost decision is hilarious.
0: Yes, I agree. One particular paragraph I'd jive, we won't go there. Um, I, I mean, just a couple of observations, I was t- delighted to get this decision on my 40th birthday, the best possible start for middle age, uh, apart from the, the constellation that <laughs> still not in the same decade as Paul and Sasha. Um... <laughs> um the first time of the reader decision, without any familiarity of the case, might might have thought it was an easy win for the appellant. The decision letter reads like it was a no-brainer. Um, but um, there was an allocated site. There was ultimately only really one in principle issue, ecology, uh, with no objection from Natural England when they were consulted upon uh, by the Secretary of State on, on the appropriate assessment. But in reality, the appellant's journey to get to that point was pretty torturous, to say the least. Uh, and, and you get a flavour of that if you read the inspector's Report. There were originally objections from the county devon county council's highways authority historic england on heritage natural england um, and notwithstanding the allocation and the devon and historic england backed down during the inquiry itself Natural England and the local authorities ecologists maintained that though this was an outline application the appropriate assessment had to look at the details so effectively that there had to be a fix now even though it was outline it wasn't enough in their view to provide a framework of conditions and obligations to ensure that whatever was to come forward within the parameters of the application would avoid adverse impacts we needed to show what was going to come forward, um, and it's fair to say that that approach was the subject of quite a lot of scrutiny at the inquiry. And eventually, Natural England backed down at the appropriate assessment stage, which is why the decision letter reads um, a bit like it was a no-brainer. Uh, it's unfortunate for the appellant that the process of getting permission for an allocated site took so long and cost so much, but ultimately they benefited from sticking to their guns as the three statutory consultees blink, blinked first. So there is a lesson there that if if you if you're faced with a Uh, resistance from a statutory consultee notwithstanding the great weight that must be given to them if there's clear evidence that they're wrong it may be uh, worthwhile sticking to your guns. I must finally give a shout out to my friends at PCL Planning with whom this is my fifth successful inquiry in sunny Devon in about three years though I don't think I trod trod on a beach once during those five times so hopefully next time hello hello to you all if you're listening. Now, uh, next up, our special topic, design in the planning system in 2020 is quality, genuinely capable recognition, and is it recognised? Uh, Mary and Sasha are going to tell us the answer to that question.
1: Uh, over to you, Mary, first. Well, my experience is, thank you very much, my experience is that very often high quality design is not recognised. And it's not recognised by, in particular, um, l- local um, communities and local councillors. And they particularly um, want to see, I think, more of the same rather than something which is distinctly different uh, and distinctly um, better. And I I think that's a real problem. We are encouraged, government encourages us to uh, promote uh, high quality design, which I think is a great thing. And uh, uh, I think that uh, one of the great things that, the Blair government did was raise the whole spectre of design uh, and uh, generally speaking I I give them credit for that but I I think that um, locally things seem to have have gone awry. Uh, Local design panels seem to be uh, full of local um, prejudices and I don't uh, believe that they are as successful um, as they really need to be. And now we have this national design uh, guidance. Um, and again, um, we've got lots of, lots of words, but it's action on the ground that I think is, is somewhat um, missing. Is there an opportunity, I wonder, in this COVID-19 world, now that we're all using technology uh, better, for us to use that technology to better get across the high quality uh, nature of schemes. Should we be taking councillors out and, ab- uh, and about to see high quality schemes? We need to get better at uh, explaining and persuading people um, of, the, of the merits of, of high quality schemes, would be my thought.
4: Well, well I, I know I'm supposed to play devil's advocate in a way, but Mary I agree with everything you say. My experience is that whatever's going wrong, wrong in 2020, we are not using the planning system which we should do as a vehicle to bring forward world-class design and architecture. I mean we are in the presence of one of the generation of a golden generation. I don't want to use the football term because they ended up winning absolutely nothing. <laughs> are, Ian and others, I think British architects are renowned The world over. And one of the most frustrating and saddest things, I think, is I work in a field, as we all do, where our architects are often much more lauded and produce many more successful designs abroad than in their own country. Now that is an indictment. Why is Ian having to go to other countries? Why are other architects of his caliber usually far more productive elsewhere? And I think my, my experience has been that we are not recognising our own enough. And I, the solutions, I mean, as you've raised, there are various problems, whether it be officers or design review panels or inspectors, but we have got to find a way where we can break through and provide a legacy for the future. What, what do you think, Paul? I I completely
3: agree. It's very difficult to have a debate when when there's very little to debate. The the experience of the last um, 30 years of my practice has been very much that that there is a deficit of knowledge at the local level. Um, And I, I for one, don't necessarily blame councillors for forming a view because um, design is something upon which everybody has a view, but few have an expertise. So I can go to Siena or Salford and form a view as to whether I like the buildings or don't like the buildings Um, but that's a uh, non-expert view. Um, We had a document called By Design published uh, at the turn of the millennium, which said that design is an expert field and authorities should seek expertise, should go to a design audit to look at that. Unfortunately, that's rarely done. And even where you do have a design audit, that tends to be given little weight at at the authority level. So if I've got a scheme, you go to a recognized architect to look at the scheme, uh, authorities will go well he's saying that because he's in the pocket of the appellant isn't he and unfortunately we don't have a, a design review panel approach which is consistently good across the country i'm sure there are some good ones not sure i've encountered many in my my time but i'm sure there are some good ones but to place reliance upon who happens to be available that Thursday afternoon to present to is problematical so i, I take a slightly different view which is there is a systemic problem rather than necessarily um, a, a cultural problem uh, mm-hmm. from the way in which decision making is is raised, and we need to alter how the system operates. Just resurrect by design; it was pretty good. Page sixty sixty seven was the one that said, "Go out and get an audit." Mm-hmm. And if you go out and get an audit, and the auditor says it's pretty good, then who is it? Then the authority risks costs when they refuse it and go to appeal. This is not an area upon which my humble lay be, lay view. However much I like things like this gorgeous building behind me. Um, however much i like it that's not the expert view because these guys have trained in the engineering concept concepts the lighting concepts the design elements they see in 3d they don't just see the designs so i don't necessarily blame the councillors. i do blame the system
0: and it's not as if the policy framework isn't there i mean we had to, to some some fanfare uh what's now paragraph 131 of the 2018-19 framework that says great weight must be given to outstanding innovative designs which amongst other things help raise the standard design more generally in the area um, so the, the policy teeth are there. It's just they they don't seem to bite uh, because of um, the the cultural sort of human issues amongst uh, decision makers. Uh, I and mean, I've had two inquiries where that 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 particular part of the MPPF has been raised, and it's not really been taken seriously.
1: Hmm, indeed, and and actually, you don't you don't get costs, do you? because these things are just regarded as subjective issues. Um, right. And and so actually the you know the developer who goes out and ha- maybe has a competition employs an architect um really trying to raise the bar um doesn't ne- doesn't necessarily uh, get rewarded that that's the disappointing thing i think for everyone
5: actually what do you think ian is architecture respected in this country i asked your eminent selves do you think architecture is respected by the general public in this country not nearly enough I think they love it
2: when they see a really good building, I think people get very proud of it, particularly if it's in your home city, people feel a great attachment to it, but generally I don't think there is enough um, respect for architecture and certainly not enough appreciation of innovation
5: I think taking Charlie's point about culture, culture and personal view if you like we working in Europe you find different appreciation of what is or constitutes culture. And if one thinks of the performing arts, as well as the uh, applied arts, the general feeling across Europe is they're incredibly valuable and they're recognized by the populace at large. as hugely valuable. We tend to measure everything over here when you meet a minister by, is it going to give us any, any tax is it going to be measured by pounds and the result of that is that they something like say the music industry up until a few years ago nobody knew what the music industry in london for example generated for the nation nobody had a clue until you can put a figure in front of a minister so when you come to culture in europe it's not the money that's actually placed in front they know the value of it whereas over here because we're slightly more I suppose, I was going to say parochial, um, but we measure things in the wrong way, much of what we do.
4: Do
1: you think sometimes we get slightly confused between um, uh, our heritage and uh, we get slightly tied up with protecting our heritage, protecting what's old, protecting what's familiar, and we don't recognise as a nation that actually um, new, uh, exciting architecture can sit very comfortably um, alongside the best of, of, of our heritage. I mean, just looking think, at the picture of the Louvre is a good example of that.
5: I think, well, if it's, it's not a question simply of what we in our generation have seen as new. If you think back, um, a lot of people in this country like Tudor-Beethan housing, they won't remain, recall the fact that the Tudors Tudor and brought in chimneys and set fire to most towns in the process because they didn't know how to handle the new technology of chimneys. It was a nice idea. And so in every era you get new ideas and those new ideas, when you look back at heritage, are the ones that generally survive in very well-built buildings, generally. And I- I then, want- then they are preserved. The problem with our culture in England, or I'm not so sure about Scotland, but in England, is to look at that and say, well, why should we do anything different? It's good. We like it.
0: I wonder if the answer to your question is is architecture respected? If the answer is different um, between the town and country, in 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 cities, for example, that I, I, my my feel is the most respected, big institutional, well-known building. You know, the Palace of Westminster, St. Paul's, you know, the, the classic the shard, even modern modern buildings, yes. iconic buildings. Um, whereas in the countryside or in, in country and rural communities, I think Mary going back to what you were saying, it's the old the kind of the old um, older buildings in historic conservation area, you know, they are seen as valuable. But the moment anything new is proposed or innovative, it's, it's often treated as by definition bad. I see Andy Cooks made a, a comment in the in the in the chat function that remind me of a, a case that we did where andy was trying to argue applying the the guidelines and landscape and visual assessment you could reach a judgment once you've assessed the the magnitude of an impact um, that you, you could you could say qualitatively it was beneficial and he got completely shouted down by this bit, saying this inspector couldn't imagine a beneficial visual effect from building something new on virgin land that
5: by definition it's yeah it's Arnold, interesting because it's the um, two two examples a bit like sort of paris and london but it's actually france and england The first design I ever did was a French house for an elderly couple. It happened to be largely all glass, solar powered and everything else. And very respectful, I think, of the environment. But to get planning permission, we had to hide it behind the earth that came out of the cellar Mm -hmm. with banks and planting. When it came to the second house I did in Sussex, near Uckfield, the general density was probably one house per hectare. Um, this particular site that our client proposed to buy had a tiny cottage and she visited it. Well, I went with her and she said, what do we do with the cottage? And I said, what would you like to do with the cottage? And she said, blow it up. (laughs) And I said, well, on the basis of blowing it up, you would actually be allowed to build much more compared, you know, looking at the densities around here. And so we did the same, that argument of density, if you like, just in terms of the scale of one house. So we upped it by three times and built it like a crashed aeroplane. In applying for the planning permission and making a presentation, I realized with a bit of research that an air commodore was on the panel. Somebody who liked Walt Disney, particularly Bambi, was also on the panel, the planning committee. And so we did drawings with Bambi in the foreground, a section that looked like an aircraft, and they gave it planning permission, but added a note, well, you can't really see it from anywhere, can you? Mm. Except the sky. So it's the same disease. Mm. That house now is under threat of being listed by English Heritage. It's already in Pevner's Guide to English Houses.
4: Mm.
5: And the owner is quite not against it. I am actually really against it, because if you really want to do something afterwards, you're going to be struggling. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with the French house. They now want to list that one. They're Uh, fighting that one off.
0: That's quite an interesting uh, illustration of of the issues. Let's Mm -hmm. move on. I think we're going to carry on discussing some of these issues in our interview with you, Ian. But I think let's uh, let's move on to to that stage of of our our show. And um, Chris, you're going to kick off. with um, hopefully some, some images, I think, aren't you? Yeah,
2: so, uh, so uh, Ian, uh, everybody knows um, about your work. I think not everybody associates it with a particular architect, but when we go to some of the images of the work that you've done, um, people are going to recognise it. Can I just check with the other panellists? That's come up yeah. as a slide. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, those are the pyramids in the sculpture park at the Louvre in Paris. When, when was
5: that? That was 1983 to 93 and, how, and you've got, you've oh, got three, three sculpture courts in the foreground. You've got the, the main pyramid in the corner of Paulillon, and you've got to the right in the green circle, the pyramid, the inverted pyramid in the carousel, is called. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Those are the three parts that we spent our firm of design engineers and my firm in London working on.
2: And how, how did that commission um, arise? How did they approach you for that?
5: Um, it actually came from the Etablissement Public, Grand Public of the Louvre, which is the ministry, basically the Ministry of Works, who, uh, because of our emerging reputation and Peter Rice's reputation already from the Centre Pompidou and our work at La Villette, they asked us to get involved. And the first thing was to check whether or not this pyramid structure was very good or not. That was proposed by I. M. Pei, who was selected by Mitron. no competition, so the French architect were a bit upset. <laughs> and um, the structure pr- proposal by Canadian engineers was actually very, very good. The glazing was 1950s mid-rise New York. Nothing interesting and quite dreadful, actually. Um, but the resulting thing was that we were brought in, not just to do that appraisal, but then to do a mock-up because it was a polemical situation in France for a year, uh, between the right and the left, between those that believed in Louis XIV and the, the Sun King of France, and the, basically that was the state, it was him, and the socialists who are now in power who said, no, the state is for the people. So they wanted to put the knife into, <laughs> into the Louvre, basically.
2: We <laughs> see here something else that you've These are um, pylons for EDF. <laughs> Tell us a little
1: about those.
5: Well, they were uh, very interesting. The French, they have held an international competition um, and we won it with these pylons. This is the very high voltage, the 400,000 volts. These are the motorways across Europe, which the French invested in the 1950s with their nuclear power. And they were going to build the transmission systems across Europe, uh, along with the railways, the high speed railways, the TGV etc. So they had a real kind of strategy policy for a European dimension. And the colour came afterwards. They held a competition for any student of art in France to paint these pylons, to come up with a colour scheme. The Mirage jets fly across this down the Rhône Valley. So normally you have to have red, red and white. We argued with the military, the air military, saying that actually blue and yellow is quite a contrast when you're in the sky looking down or looking, coming at you. So anyway, that's the result. So that's and a big 500 meter span across the Rhone. Wow. And uh, this is in Madrid. Next one. This is the Centro d'arte Reina Sofia, which came about because the Minister of Culture that had invested in this project over many decades finally decided they were going to do contemporary art. And the contemporary art would be defined by Picasso's Guernica which was then in the Prado Annex, which dated, if you like, 1938, this contemporary art. And the contractor was given the job and he didn't have the information about how to move people in and up and around the building very well. So we were approached, actually, my, the Paris firm of RFR, my firm there, but because Peter Rice was struggling with Kansai Airport and Martin was in a boat somewhere in the South Pacific in the round the world race, Uh, they came to London to see me and I went down there and we sorted something out in a week and got on with it and it was all over very quickly.
2: And um, if we just move on I have to say this is my favorite of
5: all of your your buildings and structures this is at Leipzig is this right? Yeah it's Leipzig glass hall it's um, extraordinary. That was again an invite from an architectural practice the biggest in Germany who'd won the competition and a year out student who had worked with us they were struggling with a concept for this glass hall in the middle of this master plan for the Leipziger Messer, And so he recommended um, that they come and talk to me. So I eventually went to Hamburg, met the bosses, Falkrin and, and suggested burning what they designed because it had more problems than any building I'd ever put together, I think. And so they, and he was very generous and accepted a new concept completely. But we only had 10 months, well, four months to design it and 10 months to build it. Because they were running a bit behind but in, interestingly it's um, two and a half football pitches in length and slightly wider than a football pitch to give you an idea and if you take the crystal palace in london by fox henderson from a sketch by paxton that was another third longer mm. and they built that a month quicker
4: sorry to chip in
3: what, what is the building used for?
5: it's the reception oh, this is the entrance hall it's where they have some small events. That's our office having a party on my birthday. <laughs> um, but that was it's the reception. So you go in, you get your ticketing, you have cloakrooms, you've got bookshops and restaurants and things. And from here you go across glass bridges to the big exhibition halls. That is bigger. This entrance hall is bigger than um, the London Exhibition Centre XL, just the entrance hall.
1: So that way. space may yeah. that, that
5: space may be very useful for them now. Oh, it's uh, huge. They have the book. They have the book. For, oh, the one in London or the one here?
1: Well, both. I mean, just in terms of you know social distancing, we need spaces
5: yeah. like this. You, absolutely. I mean, they have the Leipzig Book Fair. It's held in this, largely in this hall.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm immediately thinking that's a venue for my Gladman inquiry next week, actually.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it was interesting because the um, inspector on Potter's Fields, a scheme that we did in the early 2000s, um, yeah. some glass towers at, by Tower Bridge, the inspector, Mr. Reed, actually went out to Leipzig. He went to Paris. I wasn't allowed to go with him. He wanted to make his own judgment about work. I thought that was quite revealing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I
5: just um, ask you about this, what this is? This is um, an air-supported Kevlar structure. It's about 50 meters high. It was built inside the gasometer in Oberhausen, and it was on a concept that we created called um, was the three stages of water, steam, water and ice. And this is the ice cone, mm-hmm. and it has kind of melting ice slipping down it. And then that drips into the space in between where there's the film 160-metre-long well, film where water is going um, upwards and words go through the water and then in the bottom where you enter there was going to be a resistance wire attacked by water but that got banned by the clients. So it was an exhibition, uh, 300,000 old people went to see it as a, it would be a blockbuster in Piccadilly at the Royal Academy.
2: I'm just going to skip through a couple of other images to come to one of the more controversial uh, pieces of architecture that you have produced. um, This has many names. um, uh, This is in Dublin. Um,
5: Could you tell us a little about this? Another open international competition, uh, they've had several but they'd all backfire for various reasons, but they wanted to reinstate O'Connell Street as the sort of Dublin's Champs Elysees and they wanted to have a replacement for the pillar which the ira which is not ian richie architects <laughs> <laughs> although it did give me problems over there um uh, the ira blew up and that was nelson on the top a bit like what's happening now a bit but the irish have managed to remove most of the british empire statues statutory in um, in dublin apart from the phoenix one wellington in the phoenix Park. Um, Basically, it was a way of being able to mark an urban marker for the centre of Dublin, its historic, very historic position and place. And it's right next to the GPO scene on the left there, which was of the big fight in 1916, the big battle. And the Irish Army, the official Army, came in to blow up Nelson completely and managed to blow out all of North O'Connell Street at the same time, which is why they had a bit of a derelict site.
2: Just pass quickly over the bridge that you're currently uh, or have been working on in Dublin. But I just wanted to come to housing because lots of people who are listening uh, are very interested in housing. This is a scheme in Scotland with a slightly unusual aspect. Can you just, or an unusual feature? Can you tell us about that?
5: Yeah, this was again an open competition which we won based on a, a narrative I described about the senses and how you can bring not just vision, but also the acoustics, smell, taste, and so on into the way you can design. Housing and the special characteristics were the introduction of an outdoor room which is south facing but also north facing, which is large. It's like a front yard in a way on each level from the central core, which is a staircase and a lift, which enables people to grow vegetables or have a space for a young toddler on a bicycle or a tricycle to go running around safely. Also, to put the linen out, the washing out, let it air dry on the north side with the winds coming through. And the other one was inside the building on the right-hand side, the six flats there, they have a, uh, it's like an escape Andromeda hole where a parent or a child, an adolescent, can actually get away from everybody else because often kids take over the TV and the parent doesn't know where to go and they don't have a friend come round. They don't want to bring them to the bedroom, so they want to play cards or something. So we introduced it in on the right-hand side, and I had a kind of mild bet with the housing association that maybe there'd be less divorce on the right-hand side of this building than on the left-hand side as a result of this. But neither of those things—the outdoor room or an escape space within the flat—exists in any housing programme that I know of. Mm
2: -hmm. There's uh, Eagle House, I know, uh,
5: one they want to list.
2: Yeah, piece of uh, work you did. And um, the RSC Courtyard Theatre. There just isn't time, unfortunately, to go through all that Potter's Fields that you were talking about. Yeah. But something I did want to just ask you about is a scheme that may be particularly interesting to planners. Um, this is a scheme in Bromley, that is Metropolitan Open Land or Inner London Greenbelt. And um, you did a scheme there for um, uh, Ian uh, Hutchinson. And um, it, the inspector noted, this was last year, the inspector. Noted the quality of the architecture and the architect, it has to be said, and that formed part of the very special circumstances um, on the case. Um, what, what can you tell us about this? is commonly known as Dylon 2 and uh, is on metropolitan open land. Um, what can you tell us about this scheme?
5: I think the fundamental aspect is that it's very close to transport, a transport node. Um, and interestingly, both the GLA at that time and London Borough Bromley, um, gave it a fetal rating of two, which was extraordinary. Now, they actually rate it quite highly. And, of course, all of these stations around the parts of the inner part of, of London are deemed to be highly desirable development sites. The approach that we've taken on island is, in fact, um, to make what has been inaccessible land for 10 years a public park for all the people around there and that means upgrading partly polluted areas but also dealing with the river and flood flood zones and so on and i think that the secret was the presentation that we made was to walk the inspector through the scheme not physically but walking through visually and with normal narrative at ground level to go into an entrance hall press a buzzer, go up a lift. Ian Hutchinson, the client, decided to run up the staircase. I remember saying that. And to arrive at a very nice flat, explore the flat and then the nice views. And the inspector understood it completely. Yeah. There were no, no kind of visual VR fly-throughs and all the rest of it from up in the air. I don't think many people are birds, actually. And there's a lot of kind of misinformation that's presented through fly-throughs.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, and I remember George Baird, the inspector at the inquiry, um, enjoying very much not listening to just evidence-in-chief, reading out of a summary but actually um, you took out a projector about the size of my iPhone and did your projection uh, as you said and, um, uh, and, and thoroughly enjoyed that and perhaps that's how things should be presented to committee. Now I've taken up a lot of time and I had a number of questions but time won't permit me to go through those so I'm going to open up um, for the questions from the other panelists, and um, Paul, you've got a question. Yeah,
3: I, I was actually going to ask you a question with regard to uh, heritage. Um, but just looking through uh, one of our um, contributors, a chap called Ian Sharry yeah. uh, who's, who's asked a couple of questions, um, and I'm going to ask you both of them because they're both related. It's about color, uh, mm-hmm. and I'll read out what he says. So what do you like to explain? why he particularly likes blue and yellow? His pylons in France, but also his scheme in London Docklands opposite his house, which has yellow and blue as its colours, where I, Ian, was the young planner getting him his consent. (laughs) And then he follows up by, uh, Ian's comment to me, his housing in Docklands was, Ian, want want to do my housing in yellow and cornflower blue. I said, sounds nice, but you need to understand, I mean, really bright colours. The housing still looks good and has stood the test of time. We need more creative use of colour in design. So I think he's actually answered his own question. But do you agree with him, Ian? <laughs>
5: <laughs> it's interesting because I think he's referring—I I think he's referring to what was Roy Square, that's now known as the Water Garden, yeah. which is quite a dense for that time, quite a dense development. But it was setting an urban block principle for all the redevelopment around Limehouse. And the client, interestingly, the Indian client, um, one weekend brought in painters and painted all the balusters balconies and balustrading, bright red. And that wasn't the color that was envisaged. But we had them painted originally white. But he said, well, in Indian culture, white is death. Red is life. Mm. They faded. And now they are the color, the planner, Mr. Ian Sharon, Sharon was actually mentioned. Um, they, they faded, in a way, to this rather nice yeah, corn blue. Mm. <laughs> but the it's a yellow stock, classic yellow stock, um, and it was you know in a way it was an, a modern interpretation on Georgian housing. I mean Lloyd Baker from up in near King's Cross, he'd have loved this scheme. Mary, you've got a question.
1: Yes, do you think post cabe we need to have some regional um, champ, design champions? Um, do we need? I feel that in, in the post-CABE world, there's a bit of a vacuum. And also, what are the successful ingredients, do you think, for a uh, a successful local design panel review?
5: I think, interestingly, just um, for this time, the origin of CABE was the demise of the Royal Fine Art Commission, which was seen as reactive rather than proactive, and. The Labour government of the 98, 99, when they came in, were very keen to move design and the urban environment and buildings forward in a positive way. And um, the then head of the policy unit, Jeff Mulgan, asked me if I would be interested in trying to formulate something. And I said, on the condition, only on the condition it's kept lean and keen and we disseminate this knowledge out to the regions fast that's design knowledge Mm. how you then take that design knowledge into the regions through whether it's design review panels or other mechanisms i think fundamentally requires um, a proactive approach from the schools of architecture in the regions which are never really engaged and yet theoretically you've got very good design tutors you've got good heads of school and you should be able to or the region should be able to embrace those people and actually have them help educate counsellors, help bring them into schools of architecture, bring them into even architectural practices at weekends or whatever, to have a kind of role, role playing where they learn what an architect does and develop a critical sense of appreciation of design. Then you bring in, if you like, a multidisciplinary approach where you have, to me, and I've said it for, 30 years, design is the same as the same as environmental design or sustainability. There's no difference. You're supposed to design with nature for people fundamentally. Therefore, you need other people on the design panel, whether they be anthropologists, planners, engineers, environmental engineers, particularly. And you get this then a really good discussion. Mm. And design has a broader, broader, far broader base of understanding Design is a process, it's not an end game. You don't say, there's a kettle, that's design. That's a product of the process of thinking. Until you develop that process and understanding of the thinking that architects and planners do, and environmental engineers, you haven't got a chance. Everybody, as you mentioned earlier, they just kind of retract to the baseline of, do I like it, don't I like it? And they're just looking visually at something that should have a very long life, be adaptable over time like you know georgian houses have shown themselves to be and perform for people in a proper way you don't look at a building in a design panel or on a planning committee and say don't like it or i like it i mean that's pathetic only you've got a question
4: i have um
0: I, you know, i was going to ask you um Which country does design the best and why? And if you can answer that, it'd be great. But I think I'll be doing our audience disservice. I didn't raise one other theme that's coming pervading through the comments, which is this, a separate point. I think it's separate. Uh, There are variations on the following theme. Can we successfully deliver high quality design on a large scale? if the mass house builders are rolling out standard house types across every site whilst looking to make cost savings at every corner so which country does it best and why and how do you get around the issue with volume house builders standard house types and cost cutting
5: well I, I should say that i'm drinking chisk <laughs> which is my advert for my client in malta who's ah. a really really good client
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they, they
5: shipped over some Chisk for me because they knew i was appearing on your b show <laughs> <laughs> uh but i think um uh, remind me of the question yeah okay which which country does it best oh right yes um gosh uh i think i was inspired by japan before kind of tokyo lost its lost its way a bit uh i think in europe we've often looked at the scandinavians particularly denmark and the way they in kind of inculcate design and the value of design in kindergarten. They don't wait until you're 11 to learn about colour or something. It starts very, very early. Going back to the person who asked the question about colour, colour is fundamental to good design, and it's not taught in schools of architecture anymore. I was taught it, and I've got a bookshelf over there, ranging from black to white, and if you think and ask somebody today, is black a colour? They say, no. Mm. Well, that only changed in 1930. Up until then, black was always a colour. Same that's as and white. And white is considered every colour. No, it's not. It's every colour plus white.
0: I and mean, then, what, what what about the point, uh, say, this, this point about the multinational house builders, design engineering, every. every well, I think. Uh, I, house yeah. How do you get around that?
5: I think we're in a complete mess on housing and have been since probably 1960s. Hmm. We make the big mistake of asking developers, private investors, to provide social housing. To me, that's a complete no-no. It creates all this work for you guys. The affordable housing on the back of private developers. Mm-hmm. Private developers have land, or they get a hold of land. That's another problem getting hold of the land. Um, they come up with a design, maybe good, maybe bad. They want to build it, make their profit, and move on to the next one. They're not necessarily interested in the longevity of those buildings. That's a risk because they're selling them, the people buy them. Social housing should be produced by the country, the nation, to house the people that can't afford to be housed or can't afford the housing. That's a fundamental, almost a human right. If a country can't educate its people, house its people, and look after the health of the people who suffer from hell, you haven't got a society. So yeah. I would set the first move I'd make if I was prime minister. I'd separate out social housing from, if you like, developer-led housing, and I would not join the two up.
2: And some of the best
5: housing, post-war housing,
2: was social housing, wasn't it? Some of it has been.
5: I mean, uh, sunlight in Lancashire. Yeah. Port. I mean, Port it. Sunlight. Yeah. Yeah, and that Port Sunlight was, uh, in a way, an example of prefabrication as well. It was built very quickly. So if you want to do the delivery of numbers and you want the quality, let, let's get the government to invest in a company or a series of companies that can start delivering them.
4: Mm.
5: The private house building sector will not do it. Right. We've talked about housing like car production for 50 years. Mm.
1: But, but I have to say, in defence of, um, uh, of the volume house builders, some of those volume house builders do understand Um, the importance of kicking off, for example, with landscape. They do understand the importance of a really good front door to a large scheme. And my sense is that the government is um, hanging its hat on design codes to try and encourage uh, the industry to move away from set types, to Mm -hmm. encourage sort of a a bit more innovation, uh, add value.
5: I would say the one really good conversation I had on housing many, many years ago is with Tony Pitchley not to do with potters fields, it was actually post that, it was actually with my son. And I said, what really drives you? What's the fundamental? And he said, well, I learned that unless you build quality, you won't get very far. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting. He is a volume house builder who's quite different. The quantum is right. The quantity of housing he's delivered in London and around London is quite staggering. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he's based it on fundamentally, if you don't build quality, people won't buy it. Mm-hmm.
2: I am am finally gonna let Sasha get in with his question. Forgotten
0: man of today.
4: (laughs) 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 Ian, I just wanted to ask you from your perspective, obviously you've been an architect for many years, are you optimistic about the quality of entrance to the profession?
5: Oof, big question. I did have a I have a book here which I contributed to, which is I don't know if you can read it. Yeah, very clearly. Yeah, um, there's a hundred different architects from around the world trying to work out what profile, what's required in the education of young people. I'm very optimistic personally because I think they they generally have a much better understanding of all of the aspects involved in design much earlier than we did or my generation did. So the environmental aspects, the landscape aspects, even the invisible aspects of things like air, what's under the ground, all of these things they're much more aware of. So I'm, yeah, very optimistic. The only danger area I sense is, and that's something which I'm researching at the moment, is because a lot of the work is designed two-dimensionally on screens, does that affect their ability to understand what they're actually designing? Now, the fact they can build 3D models on their screens, but the dimension is still two-dimensional, is that difficult or is that the same as being designed 3D on a piece of paper?
0: You have know, use used the, um, the, the visors, does that, does that help to get a sort of sense of perspective?
5: That's kind of for me a gimmick that's great for, great for seducing clients. Mm-hmm. If you've put a visor on you're no longer joined in with anybody else if you think about it. So that's a cul-de-sac design approach. Yeah. There are others which I'm working on which are changing the nature of how you perceive space completely and you share it with your kids and everybody else and that's the next generation and that's coming that's nothing to do with visors but it's much more to do with all of the senses being in place at the same time.
1: Very interesting observation your point about uh, uh, visors because I I think um, there's also a a bit of a reluctance um, to use uh, tools like that in in inquiries because they are very much um, something, uh, it's an individual experience and you can't share it and it can't be seen. Yeah, I just got
2: to finish with uh, Chris Mealy. Has asked if uh, how you feel about having one of your buildings listed. Um, when I'm you... dead,
5: when I'm dead. <laughs> I know there, there are many architects that want to have their buildings listed before they die. They want their kind of that permanence. Well, entropy will win anyway. Yeah. So I'm not really bothered. I hand you back to back to charlie thank you very much ian thank you
2: thank you, thank you
0: ian. um we've got uh champion and nudge of the week's next uh mary over to you
1: well i was going to recommend the essays that have been published um this week and in particular um there is a great uh, essay by david rudlin which um takes you on a train journey there's someone leaving the planning officer society meeting in nottingham uh and they land up in another time zone um, in in fact Manchester, only they don't recognize where they are. So this is a series of um, essays and uh, I would recommend in particular that one. There's also a very good piece on um, land value capture which is well worth a read and of course our own um, Bridget Rosewell has contributed to these um, essays and uh, her piece is very much Let's have a less prescriptive local plan. So um, that's my champion and nudge all in one go.
0: Hello, Bridget. She's listening. We want you back to talk about all this soon. <laughs> yeah. And, and nudge. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, um, that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for uh, joining us again. Ian, thank you um, for such an interesting insight. <laughs> good?
5: Marketing my book. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and, um, and also now I know what um, si- is it CiSC? I've never heard of it before, but anyway Chis. Uh, Chi Chisk. of that. Um, we'll be here at the same time, same place next week um, at uh, five o'clock on Thursday, the 18th of June. Uh, we're lining up another special guest as uh, usual. We'll send out our details early next week.
5: Can I can I ask one question quickly of Sasha.: of course, Will you be shouting from your flat when Man City are playing you next? I will. i would most
4: supportive <laughs> moment of my life watching Arsenal play in an empty stadium. Although some people would accuse the Emirates of always being empty, but it ain't
0: good. <laughs> I'm going to go and stick my visor on As a child of the 1980s, I thought by, by this time in my life, I'd be wearing a visor permanently. My life will be one big uh, cool. visor experience, so that's what I'm going to do tonight.
4: You're not bragging
1: about your age, Charlie. <laughs>
4: Ian, can I wish you good luck for Liverpool's continued season? Thank you very much. Very can, I
3: say, can, I, can I say, Ian, thank you for that terrifying picture of the future that the rest of my life will be
0: in shared space with my children
3: <laughs> the <last> three months.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great evening, a great weekend to come, and we'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blueberry IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.